0: Well, it's been a week since Israel declared war after the Palestinian Islamist movement Hamas launched rocket and ground attacks. Hamas may be the target of Israel's assault, but the Gaza Strip is densely populated and all 2.3 inhabitants now find themselves in the line of fire and in a state of siege because water and power and food have been cut off by Israel in response to Hamas's brutal killing of hundreds, including young people at a rave and taking maybe a hundred hostages. Now Israel has told the population of Gaza Strip to move south, that's over a million Palestinians, to evacuate from the north within 24 hours for their safety a ground invasion, is anticipated. This is described as an existential crisis for Israel, an impossible situation, um, and it is said that this will change everything. Uh, just a few minutes ago, I spoke to Robin Wright, who is a longtime writer for The New Yorker, covering the Middle East. As a journalist, she's reported from more than 100 countries. She's a fellow at the Brookings Institution and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's the author of several books, including Rock the Kasbah, Rage and Rebellion Across the Islamic World. I asked her if she thought that the Hamas attack was in effect a suicide mission.
1: Hamas, since it was formed in 1988, has made clear its ultimate goal was the destruction of Israel, the obliteration of the Jewish state, and that it was committed to armed resistance. Hamas, the formal name, is the Islamic resistant movement, and that really reflects its goal and its ideology.
0: So I ask you again, was Hamas on a suicide mission in its attacks? It knew that Israel would respond.
1: Hamas has engaged in, with Israel several times in recent years, and it knows that every time it is going to lose in the absolute military conflict. But it has come back with each strike stronger with more fighters, better equipment, and a wider strategy. So yes, his his Hamas knew that it was not going to win against Israel, but in some ways it will believe that it has achieved some of its immediate or short-term goals in terrifying the Israeli public, killing Israelis, uh, and intimidating what was considered for decades the most invincible country in the Middle East.
0: At huge cost to itself, Israel is bent on eradicating Hamas. Do you think that's possible?
1: I think that short term Israel will make dramatic military headway against Hamas, whether it's destroying its command post, its arsenal, uh killing some of its leaders, pushing the movement into corners where it can be you know easily killed or uh eliminated. The question is, can it eliminate the idea? And the problem is that Palestinians are deeply frustrated by the lack of a peace process. Uh, The kind of cordon that makes it difficult for them to get jobs, have viable economic lives, a sense of opportunity, education and so forth. And the question is, what happens long term? And in the Middle East, and I've covered every war since 1973, a war has begotten eventually another war. And the danger is that short-term Israel prevails, but long-term it doesn't manage to eliminate the idea or the disillusionment, uh, the sense of lost opportunity, lost lives, and that down the road there is yet another challenge, uh, whether it's from Hamas or from its successor.
0: As you've written, you went to the Middle East first in 1973, uh, which was the coverage of the Yom Kippur War uh, 50 years ago, obviously, uh, one would suggest significant in terms of the timing of the Hamas attack. This conflict, you say, seems more ominous, even than Israel facing the arrayed forces of Syria and Egypt. Why?
1: Well, the first four wars that Israel fought with the Arab countries uh, in, in 1948, 1956, 1967 and 1973 were all against proper states, formal states. and in the end Israel knew the addresses, it knew the military strengths, uh, it knew what potential peace terms might be or what a ceasefire might look like. It's much harder with a militia and all of Israel's conflicts since 1973. Or after 1973, were all with militias, whether it was the PLO in Beirut in 1982, uh, the uh, Hezbollah between 1982 and 2000, and again in 2006, or Hamas several times over. These are much harder conflicts to fight because uh, you don't have an interlocutor, you don't have a proper border. Uh, The militias are all based in kind of subterranean cities that are in underground tunnels. So it's they're more complicated to fight. And remember, these militias all have absolutist ideologies, and they don't have constituencies proper like the states do. So this is why it's been messy and why Israel hasn't managed to eliminate its, the its adversaries that are militias.
0: It's um, interesting. I've been listening to a couple of interviews done with Hamas representatives, and you've talked to Hamas in the past as well. And when they say, no, we do not target civilians, it it seems to me that they are saying, if you are an Israeli, you cannot be a civilian, you are automatically a settler and a target. Is that what they're saying?
1: Hamas has made clear it. it looks at all israeli, israelis as supporters of the israeli state and and they are targets and it's made clear in its atrocities uh, in the last week how far it's willing to go in killing babies and women and families and uh, burning them to death i mean it's just staggering the, what many israelis believe is the largest set of atrocities since the holocaust during world war ii
0: And consequently, Israel is killing women and babies indiscriminately as well.
1: Well, you're saying that, you know, we don't know what the death toll is or who who is dying in the Gaza Strip. Uh, We will probably have an accounting of it down the road. The danger always is that there is collateral damage or unintended consequences in wars. I've covered every war revolution and uprising in the Middle East from all sides. Uh, since 1973, a half century of them, and in all of them, there have been civilian deaths. That's the tragedy of war. Uh, that's the American experience in Iraq and Afghanistan too. You know, you uh, as an American, it breaks my heart when I think about the the civilians that have died at the hands of American arms and fight and and military.
0: When I asked you whether Hamas was on a suicide mission here, I'm also wondering whether by I don't know, luring Israel into this massive bombardment of Gaza. It was hoping to make Israel a villain, finally, in the eyes of the world, and whether that will be succeeding.
1: Well, remember, there is deep division around the world on this war, as there is on the Ukraine war. Of course. Uh, And so you can't speak about one version, but it's clear that Hamas is trying to lure the Israelis in because it thinks that once they're inside Gaza, whether it's through these IEDs, these explosive devices put on roads, or the mere fact that Israeli troops are surrounded by Palestinians, uh, that they become targets and this could be very deadly on the Israeli side as well. Once they cross that border, remember Israel has already left Gaza once because it wasn't manageable. It left its occupation in Lebanon between 1982 and 2000 because it knew that it couldn't win militarily against Hezbollah, that the costs were too high, that Israelis were becoming tired, exhausted by the length of the war and the prospect that this was going to be, you know, a forever war. So, yes, Hamas is clearly trying to lure the Israelis in and target them once they get there.
0: I want to talk about the uh, the pulling out by Israel of its troops and settlers from Gaza in 2005, because Israel argues that, look, we gave Gaza its elections. We gave Gaza its, mm, you wouldn't call it independence. We got out of Gaza. And look what they did. They voted in Hamas, and things went from bad to worse. What's your take on that?
1: Look, I covered the 2006 election in the Palestinian territories, and the Americans wanted uh, the Palestinians to speak with one voice, and it pushed the Palestinian Authority into holding elections on the false assumption, very bad intelligence again, that the Palestinians would vote in the PLO, the Fatah Party of Yasser Arafat, and would put Hamas on the margins. And having covered that war, it was very clear that Palestinians at that point were tired of the corruption, the nepotism, the mismanagement by Yasser Arafat's Fatah Party. And so they voted in Hamas. It got the largest number of seats in parliament. And so again when you look at the israeli calculation the american calculation this was all a precursor the americans and the israelis thought to making a formal peace between the palestinians and israel and of course it backfired is it's terrible calculation in that it brought hamas first to political power and then hamas in gaza wrested control of the territory away from the leadership in the west bank and now they are very separate entities with very separate identities and no common agenda when it comes to dealing with israel would it have been possible
0: i mean i know this is a game of what if what if what if you know we could go back to the balfour declaration the heaven's sake but what if um when Hamas won that election israel had said okay let's deal with this instead there was a blockade and hence the description of Gaza being an open-air prison camp. Uh, Israel still can c- controlled the water supply, the so on and so forth. Hamas could legitimately claim that it was still being ruled by Israel. Israel hadn't got out. What if Israel had taken a different approach? Is that possible?
1: Looking back on it now, I don't think so, because at that point the Palestinians were split completely, and there was no sense of... How you move forward, because there were no longer just two parties to the peace process, there were suddenly three. And when the Palestinians didn't speak with one voice, Israel wasn't about to trust either side to broker on behalf of the other, knowing that it would only be rejected or become a target, whether politically or militarily. Uh, so you know, there are all kinds of you said of hypotheticals, but it's been clear that you know the gross miscalculations that have played out now for more than 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, in how the next step would unfold. Uh, you know, there are lessons in this for what happens next uh, on in this war. And and we all wish that something different had happened, but it's very hard to see, given the events that have happened, how it might have been different. Well, well, from this
0: point on, if one were to learn from history, what would happen?
1: Well, the interesting thing is this was not just a colossal intelligence failure, but it was also a failure in understanding history. Israel occupied parts of Lebanon from 1982 to 2000, and it, was, it withdrew in 2000 unilaterally for the first time with no nothing in exchange from Hezbollah or from the Lebanese state. And the danger is this happens again. Yes, Israel will prevail short term militarily, but what happens long term militarily, politically? uh, The danger is you see a more divided Middle East today than you saw even a week ago. You know, thousands of people have turned out in Arab capitals. The Palestinian issue, which has been on the back burner now for many, many years, almost a, a residual, you know, from past wars, forgotten by everyone else as the focus was on diplomacy, for example, between Israel and Saudi Arabia, that uh, that you know, nobody paid attention for a long time. And now they are because of this.
0: And Hamas could say that's a win.
1: Yes, exactly. That it's a propaganda win. So when we talk about what is winning in this war, it's not even clear, because I think Israel and Hamas have very different objectives. Israel wants to destroy Hamas, but Hamas wants, you know, it's it's playing a longer game and it will lose territory, fighters, arsenal, command posts. uh, And it may, you know. Become you know, so marginalized that there are others who take over, as has happened elsewhere in the Middle East, create a successor movement that is even more militant. So again, we have to be very deliberate in defining what is winning, because it's really unclear long term.
0: It has been argued, I think by you, as well as others, that Netanyahu was at fault for a a number of things, but in the sense that he deliberately weakened Fatah, did not deal with the Palestinian Authority um because they wanted a two state solution, which is not something he's prepared to contemplate. So he weakened them and got Hamas instead. Any truth to that?
1: Well, you know, this is where in the Middle East uh there are two sides to every story and two sides to every and two sides to every war. And in this case more than that. Uh I think that um prime minister netanyahu uh who led a a polarized society in the run-up to this war did didn't want to engage robustly with the palestinians but the palestinians weren't so keen on compromising with netanyahu on issues like the settlements in the west bank and why would they? Side,
0: why, sorry to interrupt, but why would they compromise on the settlements in the West Bank? They're illegal.
1: Well, it depends on who who's defining what's illegal or not. The Israelis think they're legal, and the Palestinians think they're not. So, again, I'm not going to take sides in this conflict. This is not, you know, my war. But as an analyst of the situation, neither side was willing to take the big steps. Who made it more difficult for the other can be debated. Um, But, you know, the Prime Minister Netanyahu will face this war as, I think, the biggest part of his legacy.
0: Can I just talk about those West Bank settlements? Because arguably, they're a major contribution to the conflict. Are, Are you saying they're not illegal?
1: I'm not going to take a stand on this. As I said to you, different parties have different interpretations of the state, of those settlements, and outposts. There are two different kinds of um, Israeli communities that have moved into the West Bank. Please don't push me on that.
0: Uh, mm, I don't want to push you, but I'm interested in your different interpretation of what appears to be uh, the kind of accepted wisdom about those settlements.
1: Israelis and Palestinians have different interpretations, and I'm going to leave it there. Why Why is
0: this such a difficult topic for you?
1: Well, now you're getting personal. As I said, I'm not a partisan in this conflict. I'm an analyst who's been covering the Middle East for 50 years. If you want to talk about the bigger issues, the way this war could evolve, the way it's going to it could suck in other players in other states. I'm happy to do that, but I'm not going to get into this rival interpretations of what the settlements are. Mm.
0: All right. Do you think that this could augur a regional, more widespread regional war?
1: What, what worries me is that uh, in over the past 30 years or more, you've seen the evolution of militias. Hezbollah in Lebanon, the popular mobilization forces in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen, that all now have rockets, missiles or drones that are pointed at Israel, that the conflict is not just between the Palestinians and the Israelis in Gaza, the West Bank and Israel, that the potential down the road is much graver. My concern is that um, I think Israel has already said that there will be an accounting and a reshaping of the Middle East after this war. And the dangers that it will want to exact a price from Iran, whether it's against its forces deployed in Syria or Hezbollah in Lebanon, or even in Iran proper, um, the, there is a danger that that Israel will strike something because Iran has clearly been complicit in everything that Hamas has done. I've interviewed the Hamas representative in Tehran, and uh, Iran is the main supplier, armor, funder of Hamas and has been for some time. It's also the main funder and backer of other Shiite militias in the Middle East, as well as Sunni groups. And so in looking at how we got to this point with Hamas, how did it build such a sophisticated military, an unprecedented operation, that Israel will want at some point to hold Iran accountable. How that happens, who knows? I'm also concerned that the United States, in deploying uh, its largest carrier battle group, ships that can carry up to 90 planes, war planes, that, um, that the United States is not just signaling, wait a minute, we're here, don't get into a wider war as All of the top officials have said to parties that may consider, may contemplate engagement, don't. And this is a way of signaling that. The problem is the United States often goes to an area thinking it's a peacekeeper as it did in Lebanon in 1982 or in the aftermath of ousting the Taliban in Afghanistan and becomes a target. So this is where I worry about the, as we say, the rippling effect of a war that ends up absorbing or sucking in other parties. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen right away. I just did a briefing with the White House, and uh, the top strategic coordinator, John Kirby, said in answer to my question that there are no signs as yet that Hezbollah intends to engage in a wider war. They haven't seen troop movements or equipment movements. Um, who knows what happens down the uh, down the road? This is a war that is likely to to play on for weeks with humanitarian um, catastrophes in the aftermath, that is also igniting deep passions and fury among a lot of parties, and who knows what happens in that kind of environment.
0: I'm talking to Robin Wright. She is a longtime writer for The New Yorker, and she's written several books about the Middle East. Any surprise on your part that President Joe Biden was so full-throated in his support of Israel, as was Antony Blinken?
1: No surprise at all. The President Biden has long-standing relations with Israel when he was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, when he was vice president. He's been there many times, knows all of the major players, and feels deeply about this. Uh, Tony Blinken as well. He used to be the staff coordinator for Biden in the Senate. Uh, long been, you know, uh, they've long shared their political views and their ideas about diplomacy. Um, I do think it's very interesting that Blinken, on his visit to the Arab world, beginning on Friday, has also said that the Israelis need to ensure that they don't uh, engage in actions that lead to civilian deaths. So there's kind of a diplomatic balance playing out. There's very strong united support for Israel. It may be the only issue in Washington on which Republicans and Democrats agree, um, even more so than on Ukraine, which is more controversial. Uh, But there's also the challenge of how do you get Arab states to communicate with Hamas, whether it's on the release of hostages or the de-escalation? How do you get the Arab states to deal with the Iranian uh, government to say, please, please, Ensure that uh, Hezbollah doesn't engage in this war. There's a lot of really delicate and difficult diplomacy taking place in in the background of this war right now. The,
0: when it, when as an afterthought, they say yes, Israel's got to be careful not to involve civilians and cause civilian deaths in this. Those are weasel words, aren't they? Because, and you don't have to be taking sides to observe that Israel's bombardment of Gaza as a consequence of the density of the population, is going to cause civilian deaths, and Israel knows
1: that. I think everyone knows that the dangers of war usually involve collateral damage and civilian deaths, and that's the tragedy of war. But I think you're going way too far in using language like that. Um, And I personally find it offensive. Diplomacy is about compromise and which which language
0: i'm sorry which language did you find offensive
1: i don't even want to repeat the word um i you know this is a very difficult uh a challenge right now for everybody how do you get uh how do you use your influence to get hamas to pull back how do you um uh how do you try to ensure that Any military offensive by Israel doesn't lead to civilian deaths that then inflame passions among Palestinians even further. Ending wars, engaging in ceasefires, as I've watched many times over the last half century, is really tough. And you want to use language with your interlocutors that takes into account their goals or uh, their positions. And that's a very tough act given the Tensions playing out across the Middle East in the background of this war.
0: You referred earlier to Mr. Netanyahu leading a polarized society. Um, arguably, he polarized it. And one of the ways he polarized it was by his judicial reforms, which caused a lot of protest. Do you think that Hamas was paying attention to that and saw it as an opportunity, among other things?
1: So wars are always launched because of a confluence of factor, not just one. And I think there are a variety of factors in Hamas's calculation. Uh, one of them may have been a sense of you know, the polarization in Israel, the fact that some Israeli Air Force reservists said they didn't want to uh, fly war, their warplanes as long as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was committed to these judicial reforms. Uh, I think there were other factors, including Saudi Arabia and Israel negotiating an eventual, and I think this was going to play out much longer term than anyone, you know, thought, as as said in the last few days, Um, you know, some kind of rapprochement, Saudi Arabia being the most important voice in the Middle East on the Palestinian issue, because it's the guardians of Islam's holy place. It is an oil rich kingdom that funds a lot of um, the poorer societies or governments in the region. I think the third factor was the kind of militant language used by uh, an Israeli cabinet minister about what they were going to do in in building a uh, a Jewish site near the Al-Aqsa mosque on the Temple Mount, which is the third holiest site in Islam I also think though that there are factors about Hamas's capabilities. You may have a lot of flashpoints as there are today that would want Hamas to engage. But it had to have the capabilities to carry out uh, an operation so haunting, so sophisticated, so multi-pronged, and so vicious. And so I think all of these factors came together. Now, we're now seeing literally the footage that's been available from satellite and propaganda arms of Hezbollah that shows how long they've been practicing for this. You can see them you know, taking, practicing taking hostages and using paragliders. This information has all been out there for more than a year and a half. Uh, so, again, I, I don't want to blame one factor. I think there were a lot that that led to this intersection of cause and capability.
0: Do you think that Israel genuinely thought that Hamas had given up Its attacks, and that was why they put Gaza on the back burner?
1: No, I think there was another factor that was playing out as well, and that was the shift in Israeli and U.S. intelligence had gone to the West Bank where there were growing tensions, growing protests, and that the sense of an explosion was that it could play out in the West Bank, and people just didn't pay attention to what was going on in, in Gaza. But there's never any question, Israel has always believed that Hamas was an ongoing threat, that there was always the potential. Remember, this has happened before. Hamas has fired rockets uh, into Israel, targeting civilian and military and government sites. Uh, but the the kind of formula of wars in the past is that Hamas would fire rockets for days or you know a couple of weeks. And or longer. And Israel would launch airstrikes against Hamas. And then after a period of time, Qatar and Egypt would get involved in orchestrating a temporary ceasefire. But everybody knew it was only temporary.
0: Do you think that Hamas is using the Palestinians in Gaza as
1: human shields? Yeah. Would you regard? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Hamas has far more support than in the early days of its formation in the late 1980s. But there are 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza. And Hamas is believed to have somewhere around 20,000 fighters. Some of them may be part time. You know, they have to earn a living and Hamas doesn't have a huge military payroll. So uh, I think there are many Palestinians that just wanted to get on with life, that were frustrated by the Hamas ineptness in governing, uh, dealing with economic mismanagement and so forth. They've also been disillusioned with Fatah, the, the party of Yasser Arafat that runs the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinians are kind of fed up with the political options. And yes, by deploying in civilian areas, hospitals and mosques and schools, Hamas has violated all the international rules of war. And it is using um, the Palestinian population as military human shields, political human shields. And remember, yes, there are 150 hostages, uh, Israelis and other foreigners held by Hamas, according to US reports. But the Palestinian population is also being held Hostage by Hamas.
0: Right now, is it possible to be pro-Palestinian without being pro-Hamas?
1: Oh, absolutely. How?
0: I think, how do we do? How does the world do that?
1: Oh, are you talking about outsiders? I thought you were talking about Palestinians.
0: Well, both.
1: Look, this is a war, and um, and there were provocative atrocities launched to to start this war. Morally, you can be opposed. Uh, militarily, you can support the uh, what Israel is doing to counter Hamas. At the same time, wish that there was a peace process that would allow the Palestinians also to have the kind of security that most of them want so they can get on with daily life.
0: But you get- know you know that people are going to react to what you've just said. They are going to say, this war did not begin. This war has been going back for decades.
1: I'm sorry, but you know, you're putting words in my mouth. I have not. I didn't
0: put any words in your mouth.
1: You said I'm going to be perceived as something. I believe in a two-state solution and that both societies should live in peace. And I wish that diplomatically there had been more progress over the many peace efforts. by the United States, the West and others to make progress. Could, I don't you want just, to be could we issue.
0: could we just stop for a moment? I put no words into your mouth. I am suggesting that when you said this was a war, that the war has never ended and it's gone on for decades, this is just another episode. And people will say that both Israel and the Palestinians and the Arab world have all been complicit in the war that's been going on for decades. I'm putting no words in your mouth, I'm putting that as a proposition to you.
1: I don't know, I feel like we're in a war just between the two of us. Yeah, exactly,
0: so let's settle down and talk about it.
1: Well, I don't, I just don't want, I I don't take sides in conflict. I'm not asking you to
0: take a side. I'm just asking you to, to explain how this happened. And in order to explain how this happened, as we've been speaking for the last half hour, we've, we've gone back and we've got back. We've gone back to 2005. We could go back to 1948. We could go back earlier than that. It's always been a war, has it not? This is just an episode in it.
1: The conflict between Israel and the Arab world has played out in multiple wars, in multiple confrontations, in multiple. You know, acts of diplomacy, Uh, you know, this is a hard one to solve, and I think, you know, everybody's made mistakes in trying to figure out how to get there. And, you know, to me, it's a tragedy. I it's just. tragedy. This is the single most volatile or consistently volatile region in the world and has been since 1948 and it's played out on multiple fronts and multiple kinds of wars and I do not see in the near term how there is any resolution to the immediate crisis between Israel and the Palestinians nor between the Arabs and the Israelis nor between those who back any of the sides in this conflict.
0: I know I know. It's so depressing, right? Don't you you've been covering it for so long. Do you not do you not feel terribly terribly depressed by it?
1: Yes, but I've covered wars all my life. And you know, I was in Afghanistan shortly before the US withdrew and I you know, you knew that the United States couldn't prevail against a ragtag military. Um, that it was poorly trained, some of its troops didn't have proper shoes. You know, it's um, wars with militias, wars with absolutist ideologies are very hard to fight. And you can tactically make progress in eliminating pockets. But again, fighting an idea is really, really hard. Here's the what if. if
0: Here's here's, here's a, a what if suggestion, which you may dislike intensely. What if? Um, Israel's homeland had been created somewhere else. The Jewish homeland not, had been put somewhere else.
1: I'm not going to take that bait. I'm you know, um history is what it is, unfortunately. And there's no changing the past. There's no changing the past.
0: no matter what is done.
1: No, I mean, well, how can you change the past it, these are all facts. These are things that happened. You know, um, my father was a commander, one of the one of the commanders that liberated the first um, American liberated concentra- concentration camp in World War II. And you know, you you think about how did World War II t- and the Holocaust contribute to what's happening today? Yes, you can go back a long way. Um, it's terrible the anti-Semitism in the world today. Uh, all these years, all these decades, um, in some cases, all these centuries later, uh, you know, but th- today you can't change the past, and there's no use wasting time dealing with hypotheticals.
0: Just just to be clear, and I asked you a little earlier whether it's possible to be pro-Palestinian without being pro- Hamas, one can be critical of Israel without being anti-Semitic, correct?
1: Look, people around the world have different opinions. I'm not gonna speak for everybody around the world.
0: No, um, no, no, I'm just I'm just asking you because some people believe that in order in order to support Israel in this time in particular, one must give Israel complete support. Otherwise you're being anti Semitic. What do you think about that proposition?
1: I think there's a diversity of opinion. I believe Israel has every right to strike against Hamas, uh, given you know what the just awful, unfathomable acts of violence that have been carried out. Um, but that doesn't mean that that the Palestinians don't want to live in peace. Uh, you know i i again i don't know how how this plays out politically afterwards i know how it may play out militarily what i the logarithm of traditional wars in the middle east is shifting and it's also intersecting with a lot of problems around the world whether it's the depolarization i live in washington dc and trust me it may be the most polarized uh, country in in the west Um, It comes amid the traditional rules of warfare being ignored when international institutions are either flailing or failing or don't have the, the leverage they've had in the past, that the principles of supporting human rights in all around the world are not being supported enough. Uh, that there's just so much changing, and I think we tend to pay attention to one war at a time or one issue at a time, and we don't kind of think about the bigger picture about what an inflection point this is um, for a lot of places and the broader principles that have governed the world uh, since 1945. And, and so I despair over the immediate war, and I despair over how the uncertainty in the Middle East plays into the turmoil around the world. And again, the rippling unintended consequences of a war in one place, and the fallout implications it has everywhere.
0: Indeed. Uh, Appreciate your time, Robin. Thank you.
1: Okay, but I wish you hadn't been so provocative. I, I, I don't want to engage in combat on these issues. No, I, I understand
0: that. Decide. What I what I don't understand is why you think I was provocative when I'm asking questions. I'm putting questions to you that everybody has. That's not provocation, Robin.
1: You use language that I think was... Um, uh, inappropriate, and you ask me questions that I can't answer. I'm just an analyst. I'm you know not what, asked,
0: I'm, I'm not asking you to answer every question, but if I don't ask it, how do I know whether you can answer it or not? And I uh, would like you to be specific about what language you found so offensive.
1: I think we've probably talked long enough.
0: All right, thank uh, you for your time. and that was Robin Wright, who's a longtime writer for The New Yorker and an author of several books about the Middle East. Uh, She's a fellow at the Brookings Institution and Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.